hi, and welcome to the Women in Archaeology podcast, a podcast about, for, and by women in the field. My name is Chelsea Slotten, and I'll be your host for the episode. On today's episode, we'll be chatting about the paleo environment through a microfauna lens, also known as understanding the historic environment by looking at bats and rats. Joining us today is Dr. Jillian Wong, a zoo archaeologist, professor at a community college, and military spouse. We'll be talking a bit about how being a military spouse impacts a career in archaeology in the third segment as well. Filling out the panel today are Kirsten Lopez and Emily Long. Thanks so much for being here, everyone. Thanks for having us, of course. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. I'm very excited. Yeah, literally the best part. We're thrilled to have you. (laughs) <laughs> I really enjoy it. I listen to this show a lot on my commute, so I'm Aww. very excited to be on and a guest. <laughs> well, we love to hear that. Um, before we kind of properly get into the nitty gritty, Julian, can you just give like a brief 30 second intro um, into who you are? If you listen to the show, you'll know we often do this, but you know, just give the listeners a, a sneak peek behind the curtain. Sure. Hi, I'm Jillian. Um, I am currently an adjunct professor at a community college in Kansas City and a postdoctoral researcher um, through the University of Tübingen in Germany. In research, my specialty is zooarchaeology, um, so using animal remains from the archaeological record to understand human behavior in the past. Um, And I focus on reconstructing past environments. Um, my background kind of is very diverse, um, because like you mentioned, I am a military spouse. And so we've been a lot of different places and I've had to be very flexible with my job. So I got my bachelor's at, um, the University of California, Davis, and got my master's at the University of Utah, um, both in anthropology And then I did my PhD in Germany while my husband was stationed there at the University of Tübingen. Um, And throughout that time, I took gaps between between each um, degree. And so throughout that time, I um, have taught at community colleges, including as like a teaching assistant. I've been a research assistant. I've uh, taught university classes. I've worked at a history museum, a living history museum. I did um, many years in CRM in the U.S. Um, And I've uh, volunteered at a lot of museums or other educational places kind of to fill in gaps when we've just moved somewhere and I I don't have a lot to do. So, um, yeah, that's me. Uh, not super straightforward background, but uh, a lot of fun. <laughs> I think that's awesome that you have such a variety of a background and so many different experiences. And being the living history museum nerd that I am, I absolutely love them. I have to ask if you're allowed to say, uh, which museum was it? Oh, I'm absolutely allowed to say. The museum is called Historic Westville. Um, it used to be located in Lumpkin, Georgia, which is... Um, So it's about a little less than an hour south-ish from Columbus, Georgia, which Mm -hmm. is about an Mm -hmm. hour south of Atlanta, Georgia. (laughs) 
<laughs> um, and it's Columbus, Georgia is famous for Fort Benning being there, which is an army base. So that's why we were there. Um, but it was located in Lumpkin and Historic Westville is very cool. It's now located in Columbus. They recently moved the museum because they were having trouble getting um, enough visitors in Lumpkin because there weren't very many people visiting that town. It's a very small town today. Um, and, and the county now doesn't have very many tourists coming in and out and uh, has a really small population. Um, so they moved the museum recently to Columbus, but it's incredible. It was very fun. It's basically a museum where they um, had a lot of houses in the area and buildings that were being destroyed and several community members decided that they should be preserved and got mm -hmm. together and created this museum um, and a family in the area donated some of their land and gave a significant amount of money to the museum. And wow. so they've basically created a village with all these historic buildings that they've had to move um, to, to preserve them. And so it's a very cool concept. Huh. The location, when I worked there, it was in Lumpkin. The location was beautiful. I mean, they have had acres of land um, that were forested. Um, and so it really felt like you were in an 1850s town was the time period when I worked there. I think now it's uh, just 19th century general. Um, but yeah, they're in Columbus now. And the new location opened, I think, about a year ago. And it's going, as far as I know from friends who still work there, really well. It's very cool. Highly recommend you visit. That's awesome. That sounds amazing. Oh, I'm just imagining all of like the paperwork and the headache of moving historic buildings. Oh my God. <laughs> so it is, it is also a big challenge legally, right? Because these are not like eligible for any sort of protection from the government because they're not in their original location, right? Mm -hmm. But at the same time, they're historic properties that are incredibly important to the local area and the history of the local area. And we're not talking properties that are just important to the white people who live there. We're talking properties that are relevant to every community in the area. And so it's a big challenge to figure out how do we get grants for this? How do we get mm -hmm. funding for this? Um, it, it was when I worked there, we were starting the process of the move and it was, it was huge. So they, they haven't moved every building yet. They've moved, I think the majority of them, um, but okay. it is a challenge. I think it will be, you know, a decade long process of ensuring the whole entire museum ends up in this new location. It's, it's a big challenge for them. Yeah. Wow. That's fun. And I, I just, I love that that was just one, one of the many unique things that you've been doing throughout your career. Yes. <laughs> but we, we do understand that your kind of your love um, is zoo archaeology and the paleo oh, yes. environment. Um, so I know I made a, a crack about um, bats and rats. Um, I understand that microfaunal studies are, are more than just bats and rats, but can you just dive a little bit into kind of like what, what is paleoenvironmental reconstruction? Why do you use uh, microfaunal analysis to, to do that and what it can tell us? Yes, absolutely. I am very happy to talk about this. <laughs> I, I, talk really, away. I love it. I love it. I think most of us, 
probably the three of you would have to agree with me here. Most of us who choose to do archaeology, the reason that we stick with it um, through the challenges is because we do actually really love it. Um, And so (laughs) it's, uh, you know, like the research side for me, this is really where I found something that I'm really, really interested in. Um, I will read an article on this topic from any time period in any region. (laughs) I'm just, it's so cool to me. Um, So like Chelsea said, I do microfauna and I use those microfauna to reconstruct paleo environments. And the important thing here is this distinction, what is microfauna? So I always like to start there. And microfauna, there's been some, there is no official definition of what microfauna is. There have been some people who have defined microfauna in their region of study, for example. Um, South Africa, for example, um, the record has primarily been studied by one researcher. And so she has a very clear working definition of what microfauna are um, in in that country, which is very useful for um, other researchers when we're reading her work, for example. Um, For me, the way I define microfauna is small animals like rats or bats, um, any rodent, so that's mice, that's voles, um, uh, also insectivores, um, and we'll ignore for a second, for those uh, biology nerds or mammalogy nerds listening, we're going to ignore for a second the the taxonomic problems with saying insectivores and how they're all classified. <laughs> but what I, what I mean by that are small mammals that eat insects like shrews, moles, um, these kind of guys. And then okay. it can sometimes mean animals that are um, like hares or pikas or rabbits. Those are animals that I don't usually include in my studies. Um, I'll tell you why in a second. So we're talking these really tiny guys. And these really tiny guys are 99% of the time deposited at archaeological sites by non-human predators. So these are animals mm-hmm. that just like humans, like where, where we're living. You know, a cave is a very desirable place for a raptor, for example, or a fox, A rock shelter is also a very desirable place for these animals to maybe live or to use to eat a meal or to sleep. Um, And so we we end up getting a a mixed assemblage where we end up with assemblages from the humans and then the non-human predators. And they're roughly dated to the same periods of time. Usually they don't live in these locations at exactly the same time. You know, sometimes they do, um, but, you know, it might be the humans live there for one week and then the, the raptors live there the next week or something like that. So they're really overlapping. And what that means is these assemblages can basically be dated to the same time periods, especially when we're talking about um, like the Paleolithic, which is what I study in Europe, which is very old. And so we're talking about when if we're even saying, you know, five or 10 years difference, we're dating them to the same time period. And so we can get information um, about these animals that can apply to the humans. And what I use these animals for is reconstructing past environments. So the reason they're good at that, and the reason 
they're better at that than other animal remains like um, horses or reindeer um, or sometimes even these larger animals like hares, for example. Mm -hmm. The reason that these really tiny guys are good at that is because in general, they have really short lifespans. Um, they also reproduce very quickly. They have a lot of young. And a lot of modern biological studies indicate that these populations respond to environmental changes much faster than other animals on the landscape do. Um, now, there are other animals that are equally as good at this. For example, um, some reptiles and amphibians are just as good or even better. Um, but that's not quite my specialty. I usually stick with kind of the micro mammals um, for my research. That is so cool. And just to ask within that, um, just for the sake of our listeners, so the animals that you're looking at, the the little little microfauna, little mice and whatnot, they are being deposited within about the same dirt level, stratigraphic level as you're seeing with human occupation. And therefore you're kind of able to cross date the two together, or are you doing a separate dating analysis on the bones and whatnot so that you can connect them to the human occupation within the cave? Ah, thank you. That's like a really good question, Emily. <laughs> um, <laughs> Emily is like the queen of great questions. <laughs> oh, I like that because I'm the person who thinks of a good question two hours later. I need like time to mull it over. So this is an impressive skill for me. <laughs> um, so in terms of the dating of these guys, they're very small. And so the challenge is that they're very difficult. It's very difficult to isolate um, enough material from these remains in order to date them directly, unless mm -hmm. we're doing a more expensive dating technique. And usually in archaeology, we're not interested in that because our main questions are on the human behavior. Um, and so we're, we're not super interested in directly dating these little guys, or at least in spending extra money to do that. And so we usually date them based on their stratigraphy and based on the dates we get on the remains associated with the humans. And that is accurate. I mean, there are a lot of these animals, a lot of these species that can be used as um, chronological markers. And so there's a lot of work in paleontology and now in archaeology as well that really confirms that this is this is an accurate way to understand them. So, you know, in, in the time periods that I currently study, um, we're looking stratigraphically. If we're finding microfauna um, in the same stratigraphic layer that we're finding the archaeological record, we assume that those are deposited around the same time. That makes a lot of sense. And, and I'd imagine that during that time frame too, that people were just more used to having all these little critters running around more than we would be today, I guess. I don't know. But Emily, think about barn owls. I mean, <laughs> I mean, I love barn owls. I just thinking about mice everywhere. It's like, ah. I mean, and so the thing is that we're also talking about accumulations that are, you know, if we're talking about the time periods I study just for uh, listeners who aren't familiar with the Paleolithic. So the, the site that I currently work at the research that I've done so far is primarily about 15,000 years old. Mm -hmm. And so we're talking about accumulations that are building up over, if not thousands, then hundreds of years, right? Mm -hmm. And so a 
when we're looking at, if you've seen pictures on my Twitter, for example, or any presentations I've done on this topic, then it's it looks like a lot. It's a lot of bones. It's like these huge piles of little tiny, teeny tiny bones. But what we're talking about there is hundreds of years at least of accumulation. Okay. And so I think that probably, yeah, humans who are foragers are much more used to interacting with the animals around them and having living with them, you know, um, especially because they're not sedentary. And so animals can establish themselves in these same locations that they Mm -hmm. would. But also, I think that today we forget that, you know, this kind of ecological relationship is actually happening even in cities. It's happening. It's happening at my house. I mean, we have coyotes. <laughs> we have coyotes in our area and mm-hmm. uh, we get a lot of dead bulls in our area. My dog is thrilled. Yeah. Um, and so these <laughs> ecological relationships are still happening. They're obviously very different than in the past, mm-hmm. but we have wild animals living near us leaving their food remains, you know, in our backyard, for example. Uh, We're just less happy about it. (laughs) Yes, I think so. I mean, I'm happy about it, but I don't think I'm the (laughs) average person who lives in my neighborhood. (laughs) Yes. No, but but we do, even in cities, um, right? I, I live in a city and we know that there are foxes in the city and when we go on different walks Mm -hmm. we see different foxes that we can recognize um they are around as much as humans have tried to get rid of them we're not very good at it which is a good thing we're also too good at it which is a bad thing yes (laughs) i mean certain animals good certain animals bad yeah in terms of like canids you know you're talking foxes coyotes they are just very good at adapting to living around humans, which is a huge problem for their preservation, obviously. I mean, even in my neighborhood, we have a huge problem with people complaining about the presence of the coyotes, thinking that they're dangerous. And, you know, coyotes are generally, unless there's some sort of freak situation, not at all dangerous to humans. Um, And so it's, it's uh, a little bit of a challenge, I think, for those of us who study these interactions um, between animals and humans on a regular basis, where I'm sitting there going, no, we've been doing this for thousands of years. Just <laughs> leave the foxes alone, you know, or whatever it is. <laughs> yeah, here in Portland, we have a lot of coyotes. And the biggest challenge with them is that <clears throat> people who like to let their cats out sometimes. Yeah. But they tend to do a pretty good job at keeping the rats and squirrels in check. Um, Mm -hmm. But then there's, of course, you know, trash pandas abound, um, (laughs) also known as raccoons. Yes. Um, So it's It's so disappointing that the coyotes are like too large of a prey item. I'm like, come on. (laughs) (laughs) I will say for the coyotes, I used to ride at um, uh, stables that occasionally had coyote dens near it and when Ooh. when there were coyote dens near it the problem wasn't necessarily the coyotes themselves so much as that, that the horses would spook at them so if you were riding oh, and yeah. your horse spooked and threw you um Ooh, it was like a kind of a weird no interaction to think about um yeah. but we are unfortunately at the end of our um first segment So we're going to go to break, but when we come back, Jillian, I know I'm really looking forward to hearing more about 
your specific research in an area of Germany whose name I am not going to try and pronounce. <laughs> Very smart, yes. <laughs> All right, see you after the break. <laughs> Did you know that we have a blog? Check out the Women in Archaeology website for a variety of blog posts as well as past episodes. Interested in supporting the podcast? From the website, you can check out our Patreon account and learn about the different ways to help support the blog and podcast. We can give you a cool sticker in return. Again, thank you for listening. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Women in Archaeology podcast. On today's episode, we've been joined by Jillian Wong, and we've been talking about her work um, with paleo-environmental reconstruction and microfauna. We've talked a bit more generally about that in the last segment. And in this segment, we're going to dive in specifically to the types of reconstruction that Jillian does and the area that she works in. To, to kick us off, I just have to say or ask, how do you deal with just the thousands of the tiny bones? Like, I'm an osteologist. I look at humans and, you know, sometimes I get bone fragments where I'm just like, well, that's small and fiddly. What is it? Um, I think I would go insane looking at skeletons and being like, well, is this a field mouse or is this a dormouse or is this a vole or is this, is it a big mouse? Is it a small rat? Like, give us the demo. This is, this is, a, very good, this is a very good question. I don't think many of us who study zooarchaeology were like, you know what I want to do? I want to study the smallest of these creatures <laughs> because it will be hard. <laughs> so, um, I mean, so this is really a good question because, so like I said, the reason these guys are good at it is because they basically respond to environmental change very quickly, right? And so mm-hmm. populations of these animals, certain species, if they don't have the environmental preferences that they need to survive or to make them successful, their populations will drop very quickly. Um, and, and archaeologically speaking, we can see that in, in terms of decades even. So decade oh, wow. level has been shown, um, hundred year segments has been shown. We found that with um, some of the research we did during my master's. Um, and so when we're talking about the scale that I work with now, thousands of years, it's very very easy. Um, And so it ends up being really important for us to be able to identify these animals to the species level, because that's what's really important to us is each species requires certain ecological components in order to be successful. And so if we can track how the number of those species change over time in the archaeological record, we can say something about past environments, if that makes sense. Yeah. Can Um, can you just give an example? I know I'm kind of putting you on the spot here, but is there like a particular species that you can talk about what kind of their environmental needs are when they disappear, what that usually means? Yes, absolutely. So one of the most famous ones um, in Eurasia for this, this concept is the genus Decrystonix. And that's a vole. And this is a vole that is adapted to very cold Arctic or tundra environments. And Mm -hmm. so it doesn't, as soon as the environment gets very wet, very forested, anything like that, it's not really suited for that. And so as we see, for example, the ice age 
begin to end. And all these glaciers that are covering um, Europe, Central Europe and parts of Asia start to retreat, generally like retreating northward, then we see mm-hmm. this species completely disappear from the record because they're, leave, they're only staying in those environments that have this tundra, kind of what we would consider to be more Arctic today conditions. Okay. So if we're, the challenge then is when we're, for example, where I work now in in central Germany, um, we find Dechristonic's remains um, in what is is now central Germany. I mean, we're not talking about the Arctic there, right? (laughs) But at the time period that we're, you know, but at the time period that I'm studying, this is um, right after the end of the, the last ice age. And it's during a time period called the late glacial, or I guess it's, I need to rephrase that. It's right at the end of the last glacial maximum. So it's right at the end of the maximum extent of the last ice age. So the maximum extent of these glaciers, the coldest time. And it's when we start to head towards modern temperatures. So it's warming up, but it's still not quite warm enough that these species are disappearing, like dying or moving out of the area. So they're still there. So we see species that we that we wouldn't expect to see today, um, including things with the, with the large mammals like reindeer are in the area at that time. And you're not seeing reindeer running around central Germany right now. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I mean, that's, that's interesting. I was reading an article the other day that was talking about kind of reindeer herding up up north in, in the Arctic, um, particularly mm-hmm. looking in Norway. Uh, with a Sammy and just kind of running into issues where it's harder for the reindeer to find lichen because the snow is melting Mm -hmm. and then it gets a cold snap and then it's frozen over. So it's harder for them to find. And even when they do find it, they then it's harder to paw away ice than it is to paw away snow to get at the lichen that they eat. Um, Is that the sort of thing that you would expect to have seen 15,000 years ago in Germany in this kind of transitional period or was like something else happening? In fact, Chelsea, that is exactly what we see. And we like this (laughs) issue with the lichens for reindeer, we track in isotopic records. So there's several, including the site that I work at and my work that tracks this in the reindeer remains through their stable isotopes. Um, That's like a whole other subject, but yeah, that's exactly the kind of thing that we see happening and where they slowly are, you know, moving out of the area and other new kind of ecological niches with different animals are coming in to replace them who are more successful in that region. Um, And that's like with the reindeer, you know, these animals have much longer lifespans and they only produce, you know, one, maybe two babies a year. Um, But with Mm -hmm. these small mammals, these microfauna, they are not living that long in general, even without some sort of disaster, like terrible climate change or something. They're living for a really short period of time and they're producing many, many more um, babies. And so the turnover in that population is so much faster. So these animals are just better at looking at these questions than reindeer are. Um, oh sure I wasn't trying to say we should all be looking at reindeer it's just the article I read recently no I'm just I'm just trying to plug microfauna again that's all (laughs) no that's that's good um and and they are valuable you're you're a better person than I am for being 
willing and able to look <laughs> well, at tiny, I'm... tiny bones. Well, like, like you said, it's a challenge. So like, I have to like, based on that very long answer to your question and now just answering it, sorry. <laughs> um, <laughs> no. But like, I, you know, I just wanted to like underscore why it's so important that we do look at these little, little guys and that we do know who they belong to because we do need to know in order to do our work, but it is um, difficult. So, I mean, traditionally you take a bone if you're studying it right. I'm assuming Chelsea, you're doing something like this where you take a bone and you're looking at that piece on your workspace, comparing it to other bones, deciding, okay, which bone is this in the body? Which element is it? Okay. Now who does it belong to kind of thing? Um, Especially in zooarchaeology, you know, we're not just working with humans. (laughs) We're like, which animal does this go to? And now Mm -hmm. you're just doing that on a much smaller scale. So what that looks like at my desk, instead of me having maybe like a tray with like five or six bones that are the size of my hand, I now have a tray, two little trays that I use um, that are, that's trays themselves the size of my hands. And then one of them is all the bones that I'm looking at right then all the ones that uh, belong to maybe that um, maybe that number in our museum database or something. And what I'm doing with those is I'm pulling out ones that are identifiable. So to species mm-hmm. or to, to a more specific taxon um, often just to the genus, maybe, maybe to the species. And those are usually the teeth. Um, and so I'm pulling out ones that I know, okay, if it's a tooth, we can usually identify it. Um, when we're talking voles, um, we are talking usually just one tooth that's identifiable, and that's the first molar, the lower first molar. And so there I'm looking for one specific tooth to tell me what species are there. Um, all of the bones are useful if we have taphonomic questions about, for example, who put these bones there? Was it a fox? Was it an owl? Um, was it somebody else? But can if you we usually s- tell that by how they're chomped up? Yeah, yeah, okay. partly. So we can tell that by how broken they are. We can tell that by if there's um, digestive etching on the bones, we can tell. Um, and we can also tell by which, like, um, which um, skeletal elements are represented because that reflects how they're broken when they're eaten. You know, different animals eat differently. They use claws, they use teeth, they use beaks. (laughs) Right. Mm -hmm. I have what might be like a very dumb question, Um, but you you talked about kind of digestive etching. Like, Mm -hmm. is that just that you can tell that the bone has been eaten or does the impact of different animals' digestive tracts do different things to bone? The impact of different animals' digestive tracts do different things to bones. And so if we think about um, mammals like humans or um, carnivores like wolves or foxes, we Mm -hmm. have really strong digestive etching in our stomach. And our food also stays in our stomach for a longer period of time. And so the juices in our stomach are working on those bones for longer. Now go back to a raptor, like an owl that spits out its food. Um, then they are really not, those bones aren't staying in the stomach for very long and the mm-hmm. acids aren't as strong. And so they have very little digestive etching on them. Um, you can and, literally and actually what it looks like, <laughs> I'm sorry. 
Oh, you've literally just like exploded my brain. <laughs> I know. It's very it's cool. Gone. <laughs> and, the, and the fun thing is, if you look at what this looks like on teeth, um, my favorite ones are if you look at rodent teeth and you look from the occlusal view, which is the view of the bite surface, right? So if you look basically from the top of the tooth, then it looks like the tooth has been melted if they have a lot of digestion on them. Whoa. Mm-hmm. Yes. It's gross and amazing. Which, yeah, it's just really makes interesting. it harder to identify. Yeah, and, and that's the thing is if they have a really strong digestive etching, um, you know, this melting look on the teeth, sometimes we can't tell the species. We might have to bump it up to like family or something like that. Um, but yeah, either way, it is a lot of work under the microscope. It is, you know, once I do that initial sorting, it is uh, me, my tweezers, the tooth usually, and some putty that I use to keep the tooth in place and move it around easier. But it is all the microscope trying to figure out what this animal is. <laughs> and so is that what a lot of your research then comprised in Germany is doing this this type of thing, looking for the teeth? Or were you looking at a different set of animals? Oh, that's a good question. Um, So for my PhD, I looked at all the faunal remains. This is also what I do for my postdoc. Um, so I am the zooarchaeologist for the site. We just got, um, I don't know, I won't say her name because I don't know if she wants me to tell people, but we just, um, one of the master's students just started working on some of the bones from the site. And it is the first time I've had another pe- person um, looking like starting a new project on different bones than I looked at at the site. And I'm very excited um, nice. because it was just me for so long. We yeah. also have another microfaunal analyst looking at the bones, asking slightly different questions than me. Mm-hmm. Um, and so now we're kind of like a team of, of three and it's very Ooh. exciting. <laughs> I know it's really fun. But when I started, it was just me. And so I do all of the zooarchaeology at the site. So my PhD dissertation is um, the microfauna to reconstruct the past environments, as well as the kind of traditional zooarchaeological study. Um, What did humans eat? What do these horses and reindeer and fox and hare bones at the site mean? Um, Also the birds. We have um, a good number of birds at the site. And then... um, I also did stable isotope analysis on the large ungulates, so the large hoofed mammals like reindeer and horse, to look at uh, further environmental indicators. Um, Usually, when we're talking about the past environment, it's kind of a challenge to reconstruct every aspect of it. I mean, Mm -hmm. we will never know what these environments look like. I can say it was like a tundra, but there's no way it's the same tundra that exists today. Um, And so we want as many different sources of information on the past environment as possible. And so my PhD basically did two, the microfauna results and then the stable isotope results from these large ungulates. Wow. And is this all in a cave context as well? This is actually a rock shelter. Um, So it is basically against a big rock face, what they would say in German of fells. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's this big rock outcrop, so it's very tall that we work underneath, and people would have used that for shelter. 
Um, we think that probably there was more of like a shelter before, just based on some rock fall. When we yeah. excavate, we found several like boulders that we assume fell. Um, so maybe there mm -hmm. was a little bit more of a cover then um, for certain periods of occupation of the site. Um, but yeah, at a, at a rock shelter. That is cool. And you were saying um, earlier to, uh, with the context with the reindeer, so you're seeing that you're in a warming period as opposed to a cooling period within this rock shelter um, area itself. So we're, yeah. So the, the time period that this rock shelter that I have focused on so far um, is this last glacial maximum when slowly environments are warming. Um, mm -hmm. But what I would say with that is the last glacial maximum is one of the most dynamic climate periods of, of human history, like of, of time that humans have been in the world. It mm -hmm. is very, um, I don't know if I want to say volatile, but it's, it's a very crazy climate situation um, where, where you're having these huge glaciers retreating, but it's not just a slow warming. It's much more dynamic than that. I think a good thing to think about when we're talking about this period is modern climate change and how, you, you know, there's this, this global warming idea, but you don't just see it as warming. You see it also as cold, um, you know, different changes in, in the ocean and all these other aspects that go into it besides warming. So this is the last glacial maximum, a time where it is very dynamic, where animals and plants are moving in and out of areas. And when we look at it today in the broad context, yes, it's warming. But as a human living on this landscape, it must have been very dynamic to be a part of. Um, for example, we have occasionally roe deer um, are a species of deer that will occasionally come into Central Europe at this time. So like one mm -hmm. or two specimens will be found at archaeological sites. And they're actually very controversial because this is a, an animal associated with woodlands and the forest. Um, and they really require that environment to survive. And so um, if, if you publish that you have a roe deer at your site, or like I did, present at a conference that you potentially have a roe deer um, bone, then you have a lot of almost backlash from people. And what I think that is, is really like this misunderstanding of this time period and of climate in general, in that like, absolutely, it's warming. And we're moving away from these cold temperatures. But we're, it's not cold, and it's not warm. What we should be expecting is animals like roe deer to move into central Europe slowly like in trickles and then move out of it and move back in because it's, it's not just one line you know like the warm animals are below this line as the line moves north and the warm <laughs> come up you know exactly <laughs> well about how many thousands of years ago like is this the 30,000 years ago 100,000 years ago like roughly so the last glacial maximum, I think the date that I like to use, I'm, I'll double check this in a second, is 26,000 years 26, ago is when it starts. Okay. Um, and then it ends um, basically when the Holocene begins. So about 12,000 oh, years ago. Oh, okay. Just, uh, I'm also looking just like... on the side. I'm looking this up at the same time to make sure. <laughs> no worries. Sure. I think that's the one that we use. There are, you know, with uh, different dating 
uh, and calibration curves and different ways people look at this. It, the one we use <laughs> is probably different than the one other people use. But... Oh, fair <laughs> enough. I'm sure every country, every institution has something that's like, no, it's plus 1,503 years. You yes, know? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Right. <laughs> Everyone has something like that. <laughs> that is really, really cool that you can see this like ebb and flow. Yes. And it's really, oh yes, I'm looking. So I have my favorite time period for the, let me see. Oh, you know, so the time period I'm talking about this warming is the late glacial. Now I'm questioning whether I've been saying the late glacial the whole time or whether yeah. I've been saying, oh, that's great. <laughs> this is like, you know, uh, my brain during COVID. Um, but the, so the late yeah. glacial, that the date that I like is approximately 18,000 to 11,600 calibrated years BP. Okay. And then, so basically that last glacial maximum where it was the coldest, the one that I like, it's ending around 23,500 calibrated years before yeah. present. Hmm. Sorry, I said BP. I know that's not useful to everyone. <laughs> until it's, yeah, until the... Um, 11,000, that's the, um, go time for a whole lot of crazy (laughs) changes in civilizations. Yes. (laughs) Let's do some agriculture. Yeah. Well, but just as everything is changing and the species that you used to hunt might not be available and figuring out Mm -hmm. how you're going to survive when all of that is going on, um, I'm sure would have been, you know, con- concerning, stressful, had a had a big impact. Yeah. Um, yeah. We are unfortunately at the end of our our second segment, um, but when we come back, we will talk a little bit about the confusing and stressful period that we're currently living through, <laughs> <laughs> um, and kind of how all of that is impacting research, etc. See you after the break. Looking for other archaeology podcasts? There's so many to choose from. Why not try Fantasies and bust myths surrounding ancient finds and people? Or learn about the study of animal bones and animals. There's also the great Go Dig a Hole and the Ark and Anth podcasts. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to the Women in Archaeology podcast and all of these fun archaeology podcasts that are available on iTunes, Spotify, all over the place. Thanks for listening. Welcome back to the Women in Archaeology podcast. So far on today's episode, we've been talking with Jillian Wong about her research on paleoenvironmental reconstruction and microfauna. We're going to move a little bit away from the research itself and talk more about kind of how life impacts that research. Obviously, we've all been living through... um, the COVID pandemic for the last two years now. Uh, I think a lot of people are, are very over it. Uh, it's still important to wear your mask, so be safe. Um, but I know, Jillian, you said you've been having some issues. You're supposed to be doing a postdoc at the University of Tubing? Tubing, <laughs> yes, Tubing. I can totally pronounce that word. Um, <laughs> but have not been able to get back to Germany because of border closures and things. And, you know, in the meantime, you've been 
teaching at a, at a community college. Um, so just want to talk a little bit about kind of the impact of that on your life, your research, the site, yes. et cetera. Absolutely. So um, with that project that we were just talking about, um, after I finished my PhD, we, um, I was given the opportunity to do, my, do a postdoc um, on the, the faunal remains from the site. So basically a way for me to continue working with the project and keep going with a lot of the questions that we're still asking at the site. Um, and, and they're still excavating the site. So um, there's, there's more questions with different time depth now that we have as well. So it was a way to continue mm-hmm. that. Um, I finished my PhD. I defended in June of 2020 from a, <laughs> thank you, <laughs> from a hotel room <laughs> over Zoom because of the, because of COVID and like mm-hmm. personal life occurring. And yes. so it was kind of a crazy time. The original goal was for me to, I'd already moved back to the United States and actually submitted the dissertation um, from home with the help of um, a friend. Shout out to Shiyama, who basically submitted everything for me. <laughs> but um, the, the goal was for me to return to defend. And then when I defended, to go afterwards straight to the field, um, because field work at the site starts in May. So I was going to return in like late April, go straight to the field, um, and stay for a few months, do lab work as part of this postdoc, and then some analysis. Um, but with COVID, it just wasn't, it wasn't actually allowed. I wasn't able to get to Germany um, because of the laws. Um, and so last year in 2021, the question was, should I go in 2021? Um, in 2020 and in 2021, they still excavated, but with very limited crew. And I think in 2020, um, they may correct me, but it was something like they only allowed German students to come and they tried to keep it very local for safety. Um, so it was a very small team. And last year they were able to excavate, but again, with like adjustments. Um, mm-hmm. I decided last year not to go because I had my son that year and he would come with me, but it just seemed kind of unsafe to go during COVID with um, a baby. And then on top of it, it's a lot of, it was a lot of paperwork to get into Germany. It is again right now as well at the time from the U.S., um, and so I would, would have had to have a lot of documents prepared, basically saying that my research was essential, which it, you know, isn't really. <laughs> yeah, it's essential um, to you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so uh, basically my research was, has been stopped until then, uh, since, since my PhD, because um, I had a baby. And so even things like um, writing a paper, I have two papers that I've been working on since the end of my PhD that are still languishing on my computer that I'm only now getting back to after having a baby. And so that's slowly like starting back up again. But otherwise, um, what I decided I needed to do was find something um, to do in the meantime. And that ended up being teaching at a local Mm -hmm. community college in Kansas City. And I really love teaching. So this was I didn't think of this. My uh, bachelor's advisor, Teresa Steele at UC Davis, thought of this. Um, She basically told me, you have research, you have a project, and you are part of some other projects that are getting funding. So you don't need research. What you need is teaching experience. And so um, I started just looking around the area. We live near Kansas City. 
um, looking around Kansas City trying to find something, um, some teaching, and was lucky that this community college was looking for an anthropology instructor. And so this is my second semester now working for them, and it's been very fun. The students there are incredible. What kind of classes are you teaching um, within anthropology? Currently, they um, offer regularly general anthropology, which is an Mm -hmm. intro to the four subfield approach to anthropology. And then they offer cultural anthropology regularly. So I teach both of those um, right now. This semester, we are just doing cultural anthropology. And then I think next semester, I'll be back at it with both of them. Um, There is some discussion about attempting. They have taught at at the college, basically every subfield except linguistic anthropology. Um, But with some changes, uh, yeah, the department explained to me, the other anthropologists working for the community college explained to me that with some changes in like requirements for um, the state of Missouri, that other like subfields are not as desirable for students who are transferring. And so Mm. um, they have tried every once in a while to offer other subfields like biological anthropology and archaeology um, with like varying success. So I have a personal hope that maybe I can teach maybe biological anthropology next semester or something, which seems to be a little bit um, more useful for the students than archaeology. But we'll see. I'm not sure. It may just be that general and cultural are what are really needed. Mm -hmm. Um, Sure. I've taught intro to anthropology and absolutely loved it. And I don't know if you get the the same reaction where you just, you can literally see your students' brains expanding, like, wait, I didn't realize there were different ways of looking at the world. And it's yeah. just, I, I love that about anthropology. Yeah, it's fun. We start the semester. I did this. So this is not something I did when I taught as a graduate student, because I also mm-hmm. taught as a graduate student, but something that I do did starting last semester when I started what I call my first real job as an anthropologist <laughs> is I start each like semester on the first day of school saying that anthropology is challenging and that our job in an anthropology class is to accept this challenge, which sometimes mm-hmm. means that that day in class, it's more of a take a breath kind of day for yourself. You know, it's more of a like, okay, this is tough material. I need to take a step back. And sometimes it means that you need to be incredibly vocal in class because maybe we're talking about your perspective and your perspective isn't usually talked about, you Mm -hmm. know? Um, And so you can really help us understand this concept. Um, And it's been, last semester, it was really fun. My general anthropology class was hands down one of the most interactive classes I have ever taught. Um, And they... They were just incredible. I mean, I think, yeah, it was so fun. They were really interested in talking about talking things out. And they were really interested in getting more new information. And they were incredibly respectful. I like to think that that's partly because I have like a zero, obviously, like most of us, a zero tolerance policy for disrespect in my class. Um, But it, it, Also, I think just comes from the fact that the students were very, they were interested and they wanted to talk about it. And it was super fun. It was one of the best like groups of students I've ever taught. So the the college has amazing students, really incredible. I'm very excited for this semester. We're virtual right now. So we'll see if we go back in person or not. Uh, but I'm hoping it'll be, we'll have, I'll have like a similar good experience. 
I hope yeah, so too. Yeah. It's definitely a different challenge teaching online than it is in person. Yes. <laughs> it is. Um, well, and Julian, you don't just have the um, pandemic challenge. We understand that you are also a military spouse. And yes, that I mean, that's great. Um, I'm sure your husband is wonderful, but the, the military is kind of historically a discipline where you follow the jobs, you get transferred every year or every three years. Um, archaeology, particularly the academic route, can also bring with you the, oh, hey, you want to specialize in paleo-environmental reconstruction using microfauna, you have to maybe change countries or change yeah. programs, departments, um, go where the stock is, go where the funding is. How how do you kind of balance those competing needs? I mean, that's something we've talked about before on the, on the podcast. Um, it's just balancing relationships in in archaeology with everything that archaeology asks of you but the military asks a lot too yes that's actually one of the reasons i'm i am such a big fan of this podcast we talked about this in the break a little is that you guys really normalize this like life happening during archaeology <laughs> you know it's just totally normal to you guys and the way you talk about it makes me feel so validated <laughs> like, oh, i'm so glad it's I'm really so glad. it's really great um, but yes, so my husband is in the military, um, and we have been together since undergraduate. We met during our bachelor's. So I knew what I was getting into when we decided to get married, you know, um, because I had seen, um, you know, what his, his life was like. Um, but it is, we, oh, I'm trying to think how, where I want to start, um, <laughs> because it is, you know, with, with archaeology, like you said, Chelsea, that's like a really good way to explain it. If, especially when you get to your graduate work, you generally have this very specific goal in mind, what you want to study, or, or you're really looking for that specific topic that interests you, you know? And I think where I really lucked out is that I had a very good base for my bachelor's in zooarchaeology at um, UC Davis with Teresa Steele and Chris Darwin. I basically had what I what I learned to be one of like the best zooarchaeology educations of my undergraduate um, that probably is out there. Nice. Um, and so I had, yeah, I was very lucky. They're just, they run such a stellar program. And so it, it gave me like the foundation, which made me a little bit more flexible because I had this background. And then during my mm -hmm. master's at Utah with Jack Broughton, he like brought to that like this true um, passion for understanding ecology, um, which I, I hadn't quite gotten at Davis at the, at the undergraduate level. And then in addition to that, this true like really he is like a workhorse of an osteologist. I mean, he really demanded that we as his students understand the osteology of all vertebrates and that we also understand all vertebrate ecology. And mm. this really was an incredible background for me so that by the time I was done with my master's um, and we were moving a lot, um, I, I didn't move in with my husband until after my master's. But, but once I did and we started moving around, um, I wasn't doing research until we got to Germany. And when we moved to Germany, and um, I started looking at PhD programs. I was lucky in that 
I didn't necessarily need someone to teach me vertebrate osteology. Mm -hmm. I also didn't need someone to explain how to do paleo environmental reconstruction to me because I, I had that basis already. Um, what I needed was like a program where I had the resources available to me and the PhD advisors who could add something to that, you know, like give me something more and push me to do a really interesting project. And so mm -hmm. that's not necessarily what everybody's looking for, for their PhD, you mm -hmm. know? So that well, it was... sounds like you've made it much more of like a positive challenge and mm -hmm. like a, a wonderful way for opportunities as opposed to, oh, I've got to move all the time. <laughs> I mean, you kind of have to. I'm not saying it's all been glamorous and easy, mm -hmm. obviously. Oh, there sure. are there are a lot of, you know, times where usually by the time we move, just with my husband's job, we move every one to three years. That's that's not true for every military family um, or, or partnership. But um, so it's... Um, you know, usually by the time we move is when I feel like I've established myself in the location we're at, you know, socially, mm -hmm. career-wise, et cetera. And so you're kind of, there's always a disappointment that you're mm -hmm. leaving. Um, you know, I strongly miss living in Georgia, working mm -hmm. at that museum. I strongly miss living in Germany because these are two places where I built a very strong community um, and really loved what I did. So it's really not to, it's not saying that it's easy or that it's right. not, there are not nights when I'm crying, you know, or like uh, when family heirlooms get broken or something oh. because we're moving so often, mm -hmm. um, like these things are still happening, but I really now am able to see that the way to really approach this is just to be flexible and just take it as it is, mm -hmm. um, to really try to lean on that like background that I have and try to lean on mm -hmm. what I've gotten so far and just use that to like slowly take steps in my career. You know, like we're not necessarily going up a staircase or anything, but <laughs> you know, towards anything, but it's towards like uh, a love of archeology span and doing what I like to do with my mm -hmm. career. Is there a, location that you're kind of eyeing in the future that you're like that would be a cool place to do some archaeology <laughs> hey honey you want to go to that base oh yeah. man can you I get a transfer there really, there would all be really interesting um when we were in georgia i was very lucky to meet the archaeologists who worked on the base mm -hmm. so it depends each each base has to have archaeology happening at it, you know, so whether they're employed directly by the base or by um, a consultant, you know, depends. But I was very lucky to meet them and then volunteer for them for a little while. They um, needed some zooarchaeology work for their collection. And so I was very lucky to see kind of what the life of working on a base is like. And they had some very cool archaeology. I mean, they have everything from military history to, you know, indigenous sites that are incredibly important that are under lock and key because they're important to the people in the area. And so their job is basically to steward them and make sure they're protected and then, you know, give access to the communities that need access to them. And so it's just like a cool, so I don't know, I think every probably location <laughs> has something really cool. Um, but I don't know, it would, the way I've decided to like view my research now is that um, I want to do research projects that are really interesting to me. And mm -hmm. usually that's reconstructing environments during time periods when there's maybe like a big climatic or 
global scale change and understanding mm-hmm. how it impacts the humans at the local level. Um, and so wherever that takes me is fine, but I am not going to be living there. So for example, if it's like I have now a project in Germany, um, then I will be traveling there to do the research, but I will be writing it up at home, mm-hmm. running uh, my, mm-hmm. my um, a model that I use um, as like a very advanced step for doing paleoenvironmental reconstruction, running that part at home, right? Um, mm-hmm. And so now it's like, it would be very cool to move somewhere where it's archaeology I've never seen before. Um, but whether I'd be working with it, I don't know. But it would be cool to see it. Oh, for sure. <laughs> right. I've heard of so many different military bases with friends who were the archaeologists um, there, like Guam, and they, you know, oh, they have wow. to go scuba diving to oh, look darn. at the World War II stuff. And it's like, oh, how terrible. You know, it's just, <laughs> it seems like there's so many cool options that. Heck, I mean, even an army base in Colorado, an army base in California would provide unique, really unique opportunities. Absolutely. Yeah. So so right now it's um, for our family, it's the focus on um, being where his position is. And for then sure. when he retires after that, we can focus on being where my position is. So it's finding a way to like fit around that. That still makes me happy. <laughs> right. Yeah. That is awesome. That is. And I, I think it is really good to think of it as an opportunity. Um, I'm very impressed by by that because it's certainly not something that everyone would view it that way. I mean, way, it's, a, you know? it's a recent, I would say that it's like a recent uh, ability for me to really view it that way because it is a really big challenge and it's very oh, frustrating. For sure. You know, and to remind yourself that you have chosen this human because sometimes you're just sitting there like, well, we moved again. What am I supposed to do now? This is so frustrating. I love my job. Mm -hmm. I just want to do my job. But then you have to remind yourself, you know, you chose this human for a reason. (laughs) You know, (laughs) I actually do really like this person. (laughs) And so, um, and especially now that we have um, a kid, it's like, okay, so I'm not only choosing, you know, I chose him and I decided I wanted to follow him for a reason, but it's also now the way that I'm like framing my thinking is like, I also want my son to see me. You know, and, and it's the same with, with my husband, I think, is our perspectives have changed a lot since our son was born because you start mm-hmm. to think, you know, we're both very career oriented. So now you start to think like, oh, okay, now we're, we're changing our perspectives a little bit and starting to say, okay, but how can we ensure that we're just not gone, both of us in the field, you know, how do oh, we ensure sure. that if we're in the field, he's involved, you know, because he can usually come with me, but he can't really go with my husband. <laughs> it's a little yeah. dangerous. So, you know, it's, it's like, how do we ensure that like, we're still a family unit and be involved? And that's been uh, kind of really helpful in mm-hmm. that, seeing that optimism in there. I think that seems like something that's been uh, a trend that I've seen with a lot of um, archaeology friends where it, I mean, in the case at this both of the um, parents are archaeologists and then they both tend to either leave crm or they get different jobs because yeah it's like once the, there's a little person it's like oh i don't want to be in the field all the time right and yeah, viewing so. those like new 
new options. You know, sometimes before I would, I love the field. So, so, you know, I know not Mm -hmm. all archaeologists like the field, but I really do. And so like seeing these new opportunities as like a different way to do archaeology and rethinking how you're going to be in the field. Mm -hmm. um, Because Mm -hmm. I, I had this like fear that I would just all of a sudden never go to the field again and I was like no I joined archaeology because I love the outdoors I can't do that and so now it's like okay well yeah but archaeology does ask a lot of archaeologists does and same with the military yes absolutely yeah so we are um just a little bit over our second segment but Julian are there any kind of last minute comments that you are just dying to make um I don't, I don't think so. I think we, I think we covered it. (laughs) I don't know. Maybe in five minutes I'll disagree, but I think, yeah, I had a a great time with you ladies. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been really fascinating to talk about, you know, your work and your experiences and priorities and all of that. Thank you so much. Yes. And yeah, keeping keep in touch if you want to come on and uh, dive deeper into any other component um, of the stuff that we talked about today or if there's anything that you didn't think we quite got into uh, to we'd love to have you back for sure oh awesome that would be so fun (laughs) yes so um, thank you very much for coming and to all of our listeners thank you so much for joining us today if you liked the episode be sure to subscribe we always love hearing from you so feel free to reach out to us um, we are on twitter at women Archies. you can also email us at women in archaeology at gmail.com and we'll see you next time bye bye, bye. bye.